This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Alan Cross helps us solve the problem of Mariah. He's the host of the ongoing History of New Music Podcast. It's amazing. Check it out. But how do we deal with Mariah Carey? How much money does she make? And what is Alan Cross's worst, least favorite of the Christmas songs? It's coming up. Author Lisa Jorgensen joins us on the shift to talk about Far Side of the Moon, her book about an astronaut and the woman who gave him wings from Apollo 8 mission, the first space mission to leave Earth's orbit, and they went and did sp- uh, spun some donuts around the moon and then came back. It's an amazing story about the impact of all that on the family that went. Are you okay with online receipts, city permits, dogs who have passed away, and McDonald's mascots? All of this is coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast. Merry Christmas, Alan Cross. How are you, my friend? Uh, more or less okay. Uh, I'm just trying to get through the the whole Omicron thing, waiting for my booster shot appointment. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, times have changed for us, absolutely. Christmas is different. Uh, Alan Cross, uh, music aficionado, expert, I would go as far to say, because I love what he does. Alan, I love this article. It's on Global. You can check it out, globalnews.ca. How do we solve a problem like Mariah? Is Mariah a problem? Uh, we're speaking of Mariah Carey and the ubiquity of her song, All I Want for Christmas is You. Because mm. for 10 weeks every year, we're bombarded by this song. And uh, there's just no escaping it. It has become part of the cultural fabric. It's a it's a punchline to jokes. It is uh, the driver of a tremendous amount of revenue. Mm. It is just something that, uh, you know, we are going to see again and again and again. This is 20 year number 27 for the song. And uh, it's never going away. It's not going away. And when I was a music director at radio, we tested Christmas songs. And now for those who don't understand the behind the wizard's curtain of radio, we literally do surveys where people give feedback on song clips and everything else. When it comes to Christmas songs, hands down, by a million miles, there is no comparison of another song that is as popular as that one. There is not. It has all the ingredients. First of all, it is, uh, it's got a hummable melody. Mm-hmm. It's everybody knows what the words are in the chorus. Uh, everybody understands the sentiment behind the song. And the whole thing is uh, presented like an old school Christmas song from the 1960s from the Phil Spector girl group era. So it's, it's timeless. It's familiar. It's contemporary. It's, it's got all the parts. It really does. And this is, you know, a unicorn when it comes to the idea of contemporary Christmas music. It, it, for the longest time, we were hearing the same old songs over and over and over again. I, I remember working at a grocery store and we had one eight track tape that would start playing about mid November, had 15 songs on it. And I know what the 15 songs were because we played over and Nonstop. over and over again. <laughs> and this is why when whenever I hear Burl Ives' Holly Jolly Christmas, I go into some kind of catatonic shock because the PTSD is so, so, so strong. Um, but you know, when starting sometime in the 1980s and really picking up in the 1990s is when a lot of artists realized that they could make a ton of money if they came up with a classic Christmas song that could be brought out every year for the rest of the life of the universe. And many have tried, but no one has done better than Mariah Carey. So the money though, the money is astounding. I mean, the, the Paul McCartney, uh, wonderful Christmas time, they figure is about half a million dollars from the song every year, roughly. 
Now that's the numbers that I've read. Maybe uh, yours are, are more accurate, but so that that seems like an awful lot of money. Yes, now, Paul, McCart- Paul McCartney doesn't have the same sort of wide array of specials and stuff like Mariah does. And so her money level on all of this, you did some numbers for 2021 for all I want for Christmas is you alone. Yes. So if we take in all the streaming, if we take in all the sales of digital tracks, digital albums, if we take in the sale of Mariah Carey's Christmas album, which has been out since 1994, and if we look at some of the auxiliary deals, oh, Radio Airplay, if we take that into account, and if we look at some of the auxiliary deals that Mariah has entered into this year, uh, including a deal with Apple TV and uh, another one with McDonald's, and another one with the London Underground, where she uh, says, mind the gap. And oh, by the way, make sure you stream my song, All I Want is, All I Want for Christmas is You, on Amazon Music. So if we add up all that, it looks like just this year, for these 10 weeks-ish, uh, Mariah's probably going to bring in close to 20 million U.S. dollars. That's this year. Wow. And the, the figure I had, I think it was for up to from 1994 to 2016. Uh, I think during that period, the song had grossed $60 million. Wow. So, so it's it making is, more. It's doing it's better. Making, it's doing better. And you know, with the advent of streaming, people are just, you know, it's easier to listen to. So more people are streaming. It's probably going to get 71 million streams worldwide this year. Um, oh, no, sorry. That's 71 million streams just in the United States. Uh, so far in Canada, that song has been streamed 5,700 5, uh, 5, times since uh, the first time this year. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's, it's probably going to stream, uh, well, over half a, million song, uh, half a million times in the U.S. alone. It's remarkable. Now, that doesn't include the covers. Some of the covers are kind of terrible, and some of them are kind of fun, of All I Want for Christmas is You. Uh, they, are, they are. Now, there is no point in doing a note-for-note rendition of this song because there is only one Mariah Carey doing All I Want for Christmas is You the proper, familiar way. Um, so Ariana Grande, nice try. I don't understand the point. I did hear a Torch song version. So the song was slowed down and given a little bit more of a mournful twist, because if you look at the lyrics, it's kind of a sad song. It's like, I don't want anything. I just want you. Please come home. Please be with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that works well as, as, as a torch song. Oddly enough, if you want to go down in that direction, it's also pretty emo. So mm-hmm. you, could, you could have a band like My Chemical Romance cover it and kind of pull it off. But then you get into the weird stuff where, uh people who have had absolutely enough of this song uh, uh turned it into a like a metal song or or they they mash it up with a song that's highly inappropriate there's a there's a good one out there right now where all i want for christmas is mashed up with we're not going to take it from twisted sister nice. which is quite brilliant <laughs> there's an, there's another one that uh is is getting some play and it's all i want for christmas mashed mashed up with the beautiful people from Marilyn Manson. Oh dear. Yeah. So the whole idea about mashups, of course, is you want to have two, like the craziest juxtapositions you can possibly have. That's the appeal of these things. And those last two really tick all the boxes, you know, Alan cross here on the shift, um, the ongoing history of, uh, 
Uh, no, I got that wrong. The Ongoing History of New Music podcast is staggering and amazing. It will very quickly become one of your favorites, that's for sure. Now, is there an Alan Cross Christmas song that you look forward to every year? You know, I've always been a sucker for Greg Lake. I believe in Father Christmas. I just like Greg Lake's voice. I like the chord changes in that song. That's always been... I guess, guess my favorite, um, wonderful Christmas time by Paul McCartney is right down there at the bottom of my favorite song. <laughs> it's just, I can't, I just can't, can't, can't. Um, there is a very good song, brand new song out this year by Hoxley Workman called an indie rock Christmas. And it talks about the glories of finding a new guitar under the Christmas tree. It is forget that it's a Christmas song. And it's very good as one, but it's just a good song, period. So uh, please check it out. Hoxley Workman, an indie rock Christmas. Have you had a chance to spend any time with Carrie Underwood's uh, little drummer boy with her son, Isaiah? Gee, oddly, no. (laughs) Uh, It's going to be one of the, I think it's going to be one of those songs that is very novelty because he's a, he's a little boy and the singing isn't. Well, it's very age appropriate. Let's just put it that way. It's fantastic. But it's got this romance of this fantastic mom singing with her young uh, boy. And the romance of it is quite remarkable. I do suggest it uh, to give it a listen. I don't think we're going to hear it a lot beyond this year, though. Do you find that, I mean, the economics of Christmas songs, it's it's like going to Las Vegas. It's a gamble, right? People go and they invest into Christmas songs and then they just vanish. And sometimes you do one and four years later, it just boom to the top. Like it's yeah. kind of based on what's available only. Well, it, it does. I mean, Rob Halford, the singer for Judas Priest has a, a Christmas album full of traditional songs. Rob Halford. I didn't, I didn't oh, know yeah. that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then if you want to hear something really weird, Scott Weiland, ex-Stone Temple Pilots. Really? Uh, he's got one where he's, he warbles like Bing Crosby. Really? I mean, you're listening to this. You, this is the guy that's saying plush and sex type thing. Really? So, you know, everybody wants to have this evergreen hit. Right. Uh, and not every, no, obviously people just can't do it unless your name is Mariah Carey or Michael Buble with his Christmas album, which has right. been insanely successful. I think it's the biggest selling album of his career. Josh Groban, I think it was 2007. His Christmas album was the biggest selling album of the year. Yeah. I didn't even like that one. No, no. But, but, you know, if you can do this, I get, you know, one of the things you have to think about is that we have all these radio stations that flip to all Christmas music every November mm-hmm. and they need, they need content. So you're going to play all the big favorites, but you're also, they also are looking for new content to keep things fresh. And if you can find something that is, uh, you know, from a contemporary artist that works in conjunction with all the traditional stuff, well, then you got a, you got a winner. Well, especially with CRTC rules of Canadian content, that's a free pass for Canadians to get on the radio for six weeks. You know, for pretty much it is. If you do a, a Christmas song. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Um, I'd like to throw Brett Eldridge in that fault of fantastic sure. you you go right ahead <laughs> alec cross you're the best man uh merry christmas to you sir i hope you uh have a fantastic holiday with the fam thank you and uh thank you for not bringing up christmas shoes <laughs> i remember christmas shoes that is oh, um God. there was some bad ones too though right like well there you know I, I don't i don't mean i don't mean to to rain on anybody's parade who likes festive music but there there are some songs that i just that's wonderful. Well, let me ask you that then. There's the other ones. Like for me, Dominic the Donkey. Like great kids song, but really one of the worst of the Christmas songs. Some people love it, man. They live by it. 
Is there is there a baby shark Christmas song? No, God. but it's surprising that it's <laughs> it I'm won't sorry. be there. Is there a terrible? Is okay. Other than a wonderful Christmas time, what's the most terrible Christmas song for Alan Cross? Uh, well, Christmas shoes is the bad one, uh, and anything from that fifteen song eight track tape that I had to listen to back in the day. So, <laughs> the grocery um, store. Oh God, yeah, Burl Eyes, Holly Jolly Christmas. I can't listen to uh, Feliz Navidad from Jose Feliciano, which is a fine song, but I again. Uh, you know, that's that's like flashing a strobe in my eyes. I'll just I'll just go up. <laughs> You'll find Alan Cross in a ball in the corner. <laughs> you will. Yes. <laughs> Merry Christmas, brother. All right. We'll see you later. This is the Shift Podcast. Technology today is such that we have an awful lot of power in our hands all the time. Our iPads and so much more. When we look backwards in time, we can look back at technology as being basically a bunch of switches and dials. We have more computing power in our hand every day than astronauts use to go to space. That's remarkable. And when we look back in time, we realize it's not very long ago that these things happened, but at the same time, it's now a generation ago, maybe two. And some of these people's stories will be forgotten if we don't remember them. Lisa Jorgensen is an author. She joins us now and has a new book, Far Side of the Moon. Lisa, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for sharing this story. You have written a book uh, that is about two uh, old astronauts. And I mean that gently. Two old astronauts that, um, that, that, well, they, they did an awful lot of things that in today's world, I don't even think we can do today. Tell me about these two people and what they got up to. So Frank Borman was the commander of Apollo 8, and Apollo 8 actually um, left, launched uh, 53 years ago today from Houston, and it was the very first mission to the moon. And it was the first time that any human being had left Earth's orbit. And so without Apollo 8, there wouldn't have been a moon landing. And they had to prove that not only could this Saturn V rocket get to the moon, but could also get them back safely. And this was untried, untested technology with any human being aboard. So it's about Frank Borman and actually his wife. And the reason that I was uh, so intrigued to tell the story is um, I kind of fell in love. I read this little kind of excerpt about the two of them and it gave a little bit more of a backstory of Susan. And I fell in love with the two of them. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of books about the Apollo program, but I don't know much about what the wives went through. And that's what really intrigued me. And so that is how I wanted to approach this book is from the perspective of Frank Borman's wife, Susan. That's remarkable to think about. I've often thought about when when you see the family members watch a rocket take off, how exhilarating and terrifying that must be all at once. One of the things that I've learned yeah. in life is that when you go away and you move away from a place or your friends, everything around you is new. Everything around you is exhilarating. For the people that stayed behind, though, something is missing. And it's such a human experience to 
to be in that, to for one person to be exhilarated and the other person to be alone. And that that's an interesting crossroads to look at things like going to space outside the atmosphere, like out of orbit for the first time from mm-hmm. the perspective of there's still somebody at home who is sweating bullets, hoping that this works. Yeah, well, especially because there was they were told there would be about a 30 percent chance of success. Oh, wow which meant a 70% chance that none of these men were going to come home. And they were all willing to make that risk. Now, these are men that are just created differently. They are the tip of the spear and they have this drive to always test the boundaries. They started out as test pilots, which you have to be the best fighter pilot to be a test pilot. And then it was they they just were always pushing themselves to um, make everything safer for somebody else. And that was how Frank Warman, Jim Lovell and Bill Anders were wired. But what did their families, what was the collateral damage uh, to their families for being wired like that? And that's what this book is about. It's the real true story of the behind the scenes of what really happened um, and and what damage was uh, just inflicted on the wives, the kids. I can only imagine that the um, the things you carry with you after the fact inside your relationship after you you've heard many times with soldiers going to war that they've said mm-hmm. that the best thing you can do is just assume that you're already dead. When you get there, assume that you're already dead, then do what you need Mm -hmm. to do. And if you get lucky, you will go home. And um, I imagine this to be uh, like that in this case with Far Side of the Moon, that the you almost have to just assume that, you know what, we're going to try this. Just assume it's not going to work. So say goodbye. And uh, and just Mm -hmm. so you know, uh, we're going to try really hard to to come back. Yes. And and that's exactly what you know i really wanted to delve into just how strong these women had to be and remember too they had you know media parked outside of their their houses um they were told they had to look perfect even to go to the grocery store because there was just photographers everywhere they essentially didn't realize that they had to become part of the celebrity that their husbands were going through and experiencing. And they just had to keep that stiff upper lip throughout everything. And obviously I, the more research I did and I was privileged enough to be able to speak to a couple of the women that are still alive and they're fascinating women, but just too about, you know, kind of the dark side of, of, some of this stuff, which is why I actually called the book Far Side of the Moon, because it's to me a great metaphor. Um, the the when when they got to the moon and they had to go around the moon ten times to prove all the different technology that was being um, tested during that mission. When they were on the far side, they were cut off for forty five minutes each time from everything. NASA couldn't get in touch with them. It was the only time that there was no um, communication and it it was the dark part of their journey. And so I thought it was a great metaphor 
for the dark parts of what the family members had to go through in relation to what these men had given their their lives to serve. The um, must have been a long 45 minutes for them. Um, oh, wow, I can only yeah. imagine uh, <laughs> that. Um, yes, very, very. And the elation when the, when when they're, you're on the way home and then you actually make it home and then you don't believe it until you probably don't believe it until you see them again. The propaganda machine yeah. back then, that was a big, I mean, the space programs back then was such a propaganda machine. As these people so many years later look back on that, we all grow up, we all get more mature, we all become more aware. Uh, did that affect some of the, the sharing that they gave now in hindsight going, you know, I really was a cog in a, in a giant, giant propaganda wheel. Did that come up in this? You know, you know, Shane, what was really interesting to me, because I actually, again, getting into the weeds of the research and I was kind of a little bit on that page as well until I started doing that deep dive as to how bad 1968 in particular was. Um, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. There was the riots in Chicago. Vietnam was still just all bad. And it was just horrible story after horrible story. And then at the end of 1968, this miracle that shouldn't have happened, happened. And on Christmas Eve, they read from Genesis and it was televised to still the largest television audience in history. And for one moment, there was this unification of people and they were, I don't know, they got, they felt hope. And I didn't get how important that was for everyone at that time when everybody felt so hopeless until I saw Dan Rather choke up talking about it. He was a young correspondent covering it. And um, he just said, this was the only good story that happened that year. And so it was, it was, I guess, something the nation needed and with all the other stuff, you know, that goes along with it, but it, it brought hope at a time they really needed it. And I remember Frank telling me um, that he got, he got so many telegrams from different people, but the one that he got from just a, just a citizen of the United States, he got a telegram and all it said was, thank you for saving 1968. Wow. So I don't know. I don't, it's, there's two sides, but you can't really put a, put a price on hope. When people well, you it. absolutely can't. And, you know, Lisa, as an author who created this and now here you are, you know, talking about these old folks who are reflecting back on the impact that they had and the things that they went through and the impact on their families. Um, how did that must, that must change you a little bit. Um, you can't be present to all of this without going, finding your own gratitude for what you have or what you've been through or the people around you or the, you know, your family, uh, that must, that that's powerful stuff that, that truly must impact you. No, it, it absolutely does. And I, I think it's so wonderful for the book to be coming out at, you know, Christmas time. And, and, um, and it's kind of a time that we, we, we think about those things a bit more anyway, but yeah, I, I agree with you. It really did, change 
a lot of things. I mean, it was just such a, a privilege to get to tell this story mm-hmm. and to be able to speak to the people that I spoke with. So uh, I, it, it was, it was life changing for me. Absolutely. Well, it's neat perspective, right? When you say, Hey, by the way, read my book. Uh, we can say if, Hey, if you like space, read my book. And Hey, if you like relationships, read my book. Hey, if you like 1968, read my book at the same time though, when you say, by the way, there's this book that is going to just change the way you look at your family and love, um, and forgiveness and unconditional love and, and all of these things. Yes. And in, in fact, if some of the journey that these, these old folks have gone through, uh, with fear and addiction, mental illness, all the things that you have listed, um, yes. uh, including Alzheimer's is on that list too, that, yes. that now that's a different makeup of a book and you know that's that's pretty cool what are you left with after this here you go big long project book is out um you say it's changed your life i mean was is it one of those strange things where in hindsight you're like maybe i needed this book more than anybody else (laughs) uh it was there was some parts of it that were um very cathartic and 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 really powerful for me to be able to to write about because I really do truly believe that there is something that every single human being can relate to in this book because it's a a human story it's such a human story and it's you know an an eight decade marriage and all the things that go on during an eight decade marriage and how that stays together and how at you know, 93 years old, Frank Borman is is in love with, sadly, Susan passed in September, but he still is as in love with her as he was maybe even more than the day he met her. Um, It's, it's just, it's, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just one of those stories. It's, it's a true love story. And it's not a fairy tale. There is a lot of things they had to overcome, but it's very inspiring. Well, you can't have pretty unless you have ugly. So if you're hoping for a pretty outcome, you're probably going to get face to face with a little bit of ugly along the way. Uh, There's no denying that far side of the moon is the name of the book. Uh, Lisa Jorgensen, or do do you pronounce it Jorgensen? Um, You do. I just thought I'd check just yeah, probably in Denmark yeah. they uh, pronounce it that way, but I yeah, well, you got, the, you got the couple of eyes in the Lisa, so I was like, mm, maybe we're maybe we're yes. leading into the European yeah. and the Jorgensen's here. I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> yes, I am European. That is for sure. <laughs> uh, Lisa is from Edmonton and uh, well lives in Edmonton and has written the book Far Side of the Moon, a very human story of the look at one of NASA's most amazing triumphs. Uh, with Apollo 8 and and the whole story, but more so the the family around it. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Um, I look forward to uh, to getting a glimpse and, and seeing what this thing looks like. Um, sounds like my kind of book. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hope so. It's, I, I think you will enjoy Wonderful. it. Merry Christmas. Thanks for being here. Merry Christmas, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's the Shift Podcast. It's time for Are You Okay? I'm Shane Hewitt. Brendan Kelly is here filling in for Ryan O'Donnell. And Uncle Leo is on the console pushing the buttons. So BK is sitting there going like, I feel like I should be doing more things. <laughs> it's true.
true. I know. I, I, I like every time it's time. You just said, "Are you?" I just I hit an imaginary button to play that music right now. Oh, did you? Well, I'm going to ask Leo to hit it again because yeah. I talked too long. Leo, can you hit it one more time? Thank you. Are you okay with online recipes? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I'm okay with online anything. I have learned so much over the last year, like the workouts I was talking about. Completely mm. learned online. Completely. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't go to the gym. I don't go near people, so I don't go to the gym or anything. I what learned that all about? online, and there was a whole bunch of things I was thinking about doing for 2022, like buying an electric piano and learning how to play it. Yeah. And uh, just doing that online. So I'm not a great cook, so I could really benefit from online recipes, I'm sure. That's, so I'm definitely okay exciting. with them. Yeah, this You're is going to double dip on, on your workout and your... Uh-oh. Wow. Tec- See, tell once. Yeah, technical mastery nice. over there. I don't know. Lots of buttons going on here. Uh, I love online recipes. Uh, oh, God. I feel just exhausted just listening to this song. That's enough of workout hearing it. Um, I love online recipes, but I feel like I have to adapt them all the time. So I, I like to go there and go, okay, well, how are you doing this? And then I like to adapt them for the barbecue because there's some things in the barbecue you got to be careful of. The, the sugars, they burn and they, they, they get really, really uh, burnt, right? Because the sugar burns and pepper also burns. So if you have a recipe, you want to translate that to the barbecue, you got to watch the peppers and you got to watch the sugars, right? So, you know, just, I like that stuff. That's fun for me too. Now, the internet is a great place to get all kinds of things sought learn. Um, I'm just going to say that Ryan wrote all of these. Um, he, he, gave, he gave them to me. So these are Ryan's typos. You feel like you're getting a little defensive there, BK. What's going on? <laughs> well, I'm just telling you the truth. I did, I right, did not type any of this. Um, all right. The internet's a great place to find lots of new things to learn and try, especially when it comes to food. TikTok is one of the best places to find new and crazy foods to try. It seems that developers know that and are about to make a pretty bold business move. TikTok announced it's breaking into the food delivery industry, teaming up with a company to open ghost kitchens that will deliver trending meals to users' doors. Here's more from HLN. Let's say you see a video about some delicious trending food. Instant gratification. You can then order it right up for delivery like this. Add tomatoes, olive oil, salt, and pepper to a baking dish. Then add a block of feta cheese right in the middle. And then I'm adding some fresh cilantro to make herb butter. I slathered it on the corn and air fried at 400 for 10 minutes. They're so fun to make and they're even more fun to eat. When it comes out. Right, the video makes it look so easy, but do you really want to do all that cooking? Food and recipes so popular on TikTok, like that one you just saw. So TikTok teamed up with a company to open what are called ghost kitchens. So if you don't know about these yet, a ghost kitchen is its not a restaurant where you would go and sit down. They only exist to deliver to you. A rep for TikTok says they are not trying to muscle in onto becoming a restaurant chain or anything like that. They just want to make TikTok into a buying experience. So you don't just see it and then go, eh, and forget about it. It's something that's real. And also, you know, for TikTok, right, they make money. Which does nothing but remind us that um, everything to do with 
the internet is for profit, right? Even TikTok, they're trying to make a profit and now they're going to try to increase their profit. So if you think you're watching these fun videos and you're like, hey, these are fun videos. I like the videos. Look at the dancing people. Uh, nope, they're making money off of you watching that and they are going to try to bait you in to be hungry and or be bored. Like, you know, those, remember those old... Um, pick up the phone. Oh, one nine hundred for company. TV shows at nighttime. Yep. And um, that's exactly the same thing. Like you're lonely. You're sitting there, and look, the phone is right next to you. Call us now for the first five minutes for free, and it's a hundred dollars a minute after that. Right. And so, I mean, that's exactly what TikTok's doing. It's the new one nine hundreds of consuming the stuff. So it's not free. No, I find a lot of it's turning me off, though. If I keep getting interrupted by the same ads, I actually make it a point not to frequent that company anymore. I, I do, too. Yeah. I absolutely agree. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Like, you get frustrated. Yeah. 100%. I do. I find I do. I yeah. get incredibly I'm like, frustrated. I'm done with this. This is dumb. I'm done with all this. Right? Like, um, it drives me crazy, actually. But anyway, that's what it is there for, is to make the moolah. Okay. Um, it's only available for uh, in America right now, but oh, give it time. But there's 10 times as many people there, so there's 10 times as many profits to be had. Are you okay? Are you okay with permits? Well, yes. Yes, and uh, no, like anything in officialdom and governmentdom, sometimes there's just a bit too much and it gets mucky, you know? I'm okay with permits per se, but sometimes they just, you know, there's too many and it causes too much confusion. Uh, the red tape, you, I would agree, is can be nasty, but I mean, really, do you want to buy a house that the basement is done without a permit or the wiring is done without a permit? They do have their place. Yeah, no, I'm not saying they I'm not thought a blanket statement. Like all issues, everything I believe is nuanced. I, nuanced. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, um, so I see what you're saying, but what if I know a guy who's really good at redoing the basement and I just trust him? <laughs> yeah, that's where the permit comes in handy. Though. Yeah, that's true. You no, know? I'll agree with that. Yeah. If you live in a city, you probably need a permit for pretty much everything. Uh, renovations, beefing up your backyard, and some places, places even for a pet. A town in Utah is coming under fire for charging residents for pet permits. There's only one problem. Those residents had a good reason for not renewing their pet permits because the pets had gone to doggy heaven already. Yikes. Here's more from KUTI. The town of Manaway filed criminal charges against 16 of its residents for failing to license their dogs. They say they took last year's list of dog licenses, compared it to this year's, and ultimately charged people who didn't get a new license. But can you think of a reason why you might no longer need a dog license? I don't understand how it reached this point. That's what a lot of people in Manaway want to know. Like I said, we were kind of blindsided. We honestly thought that it would not go this far. Shane and Katrina are among the 16 residents to face Class C misdemeanors. The whole time, all these months, we thought that our dog was licensed. Court documents filed in October allege the residents were in violation of the town's dog license ordinance. The witness to the crime is listed as Police Chief Craig Hamer, and the charges were signed by town attorney Kelly Smith. 
Several defendants have already pleaded guilty, paid fines, or pleaded no contest. But some cases got tossed because the dogs were dead. This is Molly. Her owner tells me she died, and so he obviously didn't get a new dog license. But the city still charged her owner. The city now admits that was a mistake. The town council says they now realize state law doesn't allow first defense dog license issues to be more than an infraction. They changed their ordinance tonight. Ouch. Yeah. How's that? Yeah. Sorry about Fido. Yeah, see? <sighs> this is why, like, this government, you know, needs to... Too needs big, to run better. Know. Yeah. Just needs to run oh, yeah. better. Yeah. Well, I would sort of say the government's job is sort of protect the people and protect the money. Um, although that would make sense in this case because this mayor has been publicly stated saying that town should use speeding tickets as a way of fixing budget issues. So yeah. um, there you go. That mayor resigned back in April. And let's just talk about this TV station that's called letters are K-U-T-I. <laughs> ah, cutie news. Yeah. Well, I, I was like more it. thinking the I was thinking more of the UTI part. It's <laughs> 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 like you're listening to K hurts really bad <laughs> when you pee. I'd like to just uh, no, I'd, I'd like to keep it cutie news. That's much more wholesome right, there you go. than UTI. Cutie news it is. Are you okay? Are you okay with McDonald's mascots? Uh, no. You're not? Why not? Grimace was always scary. Mm-hmm. Didn't we... That's the one we just found out who it was this year, right? The purple one? Yeah. Wasn't Like it, what he was? Yeah. Wasn't there some discrepancy as to what he was? And then this year they were finally like, he's a taste bud. He's a taste bud. Um, I did not know that until we discovered this, by yeah. the way. Um, but, uh, you know, the mascots, I mean, McDonald's used to be a lot more fun, right? Like you would sit in those really uncomfortable chairs yes. and they would have like one of the mascots on the back of the chairs, totally corny, but that was the cool part about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I used to, you know, uh, make a point, uh, to bug to go to the ones with the play rooms. Yes. Um, yeah, there was like the, the one in Niagara, the closest one was in Niagara Falls was the only one that had the big play room. Um, yeah, I, do they still have those in McDonald's? I have some of them. They don't here in Vancouver because the ones I walk by, I never go into McDonald's anymore. No, that's not a modern day Brendan Kelly thing. But I don't see a lot of McDonald's playrooms. My kids, it wasn't very many years ago. My kids would do that. They were like, "What can we go with the play place?" Right? Like it wasn't very long ago. It yeah. uh, just feels like it was just yesterday. But I guess that's that's what happens when you have kids. They do that. They grow up. So, um, yeah, no, it's still a thing. And um, there's a fantastic story. It's on all of the dad, like the dad Twitters and the dad, um, the, the dad Instagrams, which is, uh, you know, I walked into McDonald's generation gap story, walked into McDonald's and I asked the young man working the counter where Grimace was. And, and uh, the guy was like, Grimace, Grimace, who, who's Grimace? And, he, and the dad's like, he works here. <laughs> story of the purple taste bud. Um, anyway, um, it's been a long time since McDonald's used their wide roster of mascots in any of their marketing, but there was a time when they were synonymous with the Golden Arches. Ronald McDonald, still a thing, but you don't see him in the marketing anymore. Oh. Sometimes special events, he shows up, right? Um, and Ronald McDonald had a dog. His dog's name was Sunday. 
Huh. Most people forget about the dog. Yeah, I didn't. I uh, think Grimace, I didn't. the purple taste bud. Mayor McCheese. Remember Mayor McCheese? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. And then, of course, there was the Hamburglar, who would steal all the hamburgers, because, you know, you have to have a villain. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's hit the clip here. Hamburger University. It's Ronald McDonald. Good morning, class. Good morning, Ronald. Today's subject, the Hamburglar. The Hamburglar is very clever and very sneaky. The Hamburglar! And he loves taking McDonald's hamburgers. So, what should you yell when you see it? Help, Ronald Taylor! That's right. Uh Uh-oh. Hamburglar. It's a good time for the train. You've got a lot to learn. Don't take burgers, Rubble Rubble. It's a good time for the great taste of McDonald's. I haven't heard that in so long, probably since the I'm loving it. Justin Timberlake took over when they bought his song. Really? Cause, yeah, I don't remember. I don't recall that uh, uh, that slogan for McDonald's. It's a good time for the great taste of McDonald's. You don't no, remember that? No. Oh, no way. I remember oh, the stings a little. short-lived McDonald's pizza. Remember that one? That's Amore. That pizza was pretty good. Yeah, it was. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember that. And not only that, did you know that the McDonald's did try to buy How You Remind Me by Nickelback? Oh, really? Yeah, they did. Yeah, and there was actually a big fight um, inside uh, Nickelback between the brothers. And the answer was, uh, you know, if you want to sell a song to McDonald's, you go write your own. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. Mm. And Justin Timberlake did. Sold one of his instead. This probably probably worked out better for McDonald's because I think that uh, how you remind me was probably quite polarizing. Uh, you either really yeah. loved it or you really hated it. I mean, like rock Especially radio stations today still even like won't even play yeah. it because they're worried people will turn it off. Yeah, it's uh, it is uh, it's not the easiest of the things to to to, to agree on. Now the the um, the uh, I'm loving it thing is has kind of st- stuck around. So now not being used since 2008, Hamburglar. There's a real Hamburglar on the loose here. Police in Stratford County, Virginia, announced that a fraud call revealed a hungry Hamburglar made five identical orders for seven Big Macs on someone else's credit card. Modern take on Hamburgling. Purchase totaled $107 at McDonald's through DoorDash. Fraud caused grimace for his victim. (laughs) The county said in a statement, the suspect, according to police, never came to pick up the notorious number one McDonald's menu item. That's a typo, Ryan. Police said the victim froze his credit card and continued to investigate the charges. Got to hit it. That's a typo. Just because Ryan O'Donnell's on vacation. I can't believe that. Yeah. I guess people do that, right? Steal a credit card, test it out, see if it works or not. Yeah. Do a DoorDash order, and yeah. then uh, then it goes. I got told that when, when I had my card um, get skimmed once, and they said what they often do when they have the new card is they'll go buy something simple like gum from a grocery store mm-hmm. where it's totally normal. It's like you're not just isolated and then if that goes through then they'll come back yeah. and um and then really go shopping on your card so well tip there for you yeah. thanks hamburglar thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curiouscast.ca